Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series called Off With The Old. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 30. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We all remember the little kids' rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. We said it. Is it true? As adults, we know it's not true. When's the last time you thought about the power of your words? You know, I think for most of us, we go through life and we say things, we throw things out, we, you know, we respond oftentimes out of frustration and we throw our words out and we seldom think about the impact that our words have on those who are listening to us. But the fact is our words do have an impact on others. Look what the Bible says about it in, in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And the idea here is it's, it's a, it, our words can be like a sword that's thrust into the soul of another person, doing incredible damage, bringing, in a sense, death. And notice that it's not, you know, there's evil words or there are harsh words, it's often rash words. Words that we don't think about, words that we may not intend to go out and do that destruction and evil, we just throw them out there. They're spoken rashly, but as powerful in a damaging way as words can be, it also says that the tongue of the wise brings healing. And in the same way, our words can have great power to build and to heal. Now, even as we thought about this, I I thought, well, let me share a a true story about uh, someone who kind of learned this and how their story illustrates it. So many of us can remember if we were there, if you might be there now, middle school is a tough time and uh, in middle school, you have a lot of young people that are struggling with a sense of self-identity, self-worth. And one of the things that often happens in middle school is you have kids that will try to deal with their own struggle by criticizing and cutting others down. It's almost like, I feel here, and if I cut you down lower than me, I'm going to somehow be better. It doesn't work, but that's what often happens. And so there was a woman, Sister Helen Morosa, um, who taught at a Catholic middle school for a number of years. And after she retired, she wrote about something that she did once when she was teaching eighth graders. She wrote how she had become more and more frustrated through the course of the year with this particular group. And what was especially frustrating to her was how critical the students were towards each other. You know, she knew that that they were struggling with their sense of identity and self-worth, and and yet their favorite form of communication seemed to be, you know, trying to get a laugh by tearing the other person down. Each one desperately needed someone to affirm them, but yet, instead of building each other up, they continued to pile on and knock each other down uh, further and further. So finally, out of frustration one day, she said this. She said, finally, out of frustration, I took a half hour uh, on a Friday afternoon, and I had them do a special assignment. I handed out a class list with the names of all the students on it, And I asked them to go down that list and to write the nicest thing that they could about each student in the class and then hand it in. Then over the weekend, I compiled the results and for each student, I wrote down a separate list where I listed all the things that had been written by them and I gave out that list. Now, uh, Sister Helen didn't expect this exercise to have a huge impact on the students. 
I mean, the fact is, she even said in herself, she was in large part just dealing with her own frustration. She was trying to get them to be a little bit more positive in the midst of all the negativity. And uh, she was hoping to give a little encouragement to some of these kids that had been particular, been beaten down. But yet there's incredible power in a positive and encouraging word. This past month, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and we've been seeing in Ephesians this section where where God is really confronting us with this idea of a different understanding of morality. You see, I think for many people, if you ask them, what does the Bible teach about morality? Many people are going to go and they're going to say, well, it's about a bunch of rules. It's about the things you cannot do. And so, you know, don't do this, don't do this. All the things that the Bible says are wrong, you shouldn't do those things. And that's how most people see it. However, the Bible doesn't primarily define Christian morality, the morality of a Christ follower, in negative terms, but in positive terms. And the reason is that the key issue isn't just my behavior, it's, it's our heart. You see, I do, I do sinful things because I have a sinful heart. And if I think about you know, only a set of rules, then what I'm doing is that I'm trying to say, well, here's a, a rule to keep me from doing what I really want to do. And through self-discipline, I may keep the rule for a period of time, but sooner or later, something's going to happen, some temptation, some frustration, and the real me is going to slip out. I'm not going to be able to hold it back anymore. And what the Bible teaches is the real need isn't more self-control. It's actually God to change us from the inside out. We need a new character. We need a, a, a transformation. And when that transformation happens, it will then result in different behavior. And he talks about our behavior almost in terms like clothing, that we have clothing that we wear, and, and, and we had certain things that used to be our clothing that the rest of the world wears. You know, you might say, well, it's a pineapple shirt, I'm not sure where that came from, but, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, that, that's not appropriate to wear. It might be sometime in a few, few weeks, but, you know, we have a Christmas jacket, and, and you, you know, if I wore those things, it would be inappropriate. And, and what Paul is saying, okay, you're wearing certain things, and that might be appropriate in the world, but look what he says. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Take off the things that you used to wear, these things that used to fit like a set of clothes. We start there. Why? Because until I recognize these are wrong and take them off, I can't put on righteousness. It won't, something new won't fit. And now once I've taken it off, I'm then called to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's not just new behavior, it's a new self, a new identity, a new, it's ultimately the character of Jesus that he calls us to, to, you know, to become different. And then what we see is through the middle of chapter five is he illustrates this by taking all these different issues and saying, here's what this should look like in the life of a believer. So we've seen that he's taken the issue of honesty and lying. He's taken on anger and forgiveness. He's taken on stealing and generosity. And, and he says now in this, these verses, now let's talk about the character of our speech. What should the character of the speech of a follower of Christ look like? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to hear. So first of all, he calls us to take off rotten and corrupting speech. Now, I'll admit, my, in the past, I've misunderstood this passage even. I, I always read it to say, take off corrupt speech. And I thought it talked about, like, well, it's against profanity and things like that. And, you now, the Bible does speak against that, but that's not the point here. He doesn't call us to take off corrupt speech. He calls us to take off corrupting speech. Look, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It's speech that has a corrupting influence that tears other people down, that hurts people. 
The word translated corrupting is often translated as rotten. It's the word that's used to describe food that has gone bad. And so he's saying that there's a sense that there's, there's speech that is rotten, that, it is, that is decaying. And it not only is decaying, but when we speak it, it spreads that decay to other people. It tears them down. It hurts them. It spreads you know, the rot of negativity. Now, if you think about it, that's our culture. The wardrobe of our culture when it comes to speech is that kind of negativity. Think about even your past week. You know, how many people have you interacted with, you know, at work? And how many people were, did you walk away feeling more encouraged and hopeful? And how many people were negative and they, tore, you know, tore things down or they complained and they just, you left feeling more discouraged? How many people made you feel better about yourself? And how many people, again, just, you know, tore you down in some way or criticized and, or think about, especially if we look at our media, if our media is in a window into our world, think about the media, think about our news. How many positive so- stories do you hear? Or how many negative? How many, how many times do you watch the news and you feel better about yourself and you feel better about the world? <laughs> or even you look at anything in movies or shows and I mean, everything is about cutting people down and humor of, of, you know, of uh, you know, tearing people down. That's the kind of speech that defines our world and so much so that we then often don't recognize that rot even in our own speech. So we each have to ask ourselves, if I thought honestly about this past week, how much of my interaction with people was I, was I spending building people up? Was I complimenting or, or encouraging? And how much of it was... Negative, was it critical? Was it complaining? Was it um, you know, you know, discouraging people? What, what's true about me? Now, I've even heard people say, well, but I'm saying things that are true. You know, it's, it's negative speech, but, but you, you gotta understand that it's true. Well, first of all, it's usually maybe our opinion about what's true that usually is only partially true. But even in that, does that mean that I can share everything that's true? But let me ask you, go ask that person and say, well, I know this is true about you. Can I share it with others? What do you think they're going to say? And if, you, if you're afraid of asking them, you already know the answer. You shouldn't share it. Well, even about them or, you know, things, well, you know, if it's true, it's okay. Well, let me even go to the next verse. Next verse, Ephesians 4.31, look what it says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. I want, notice the word slander there. When we think of slander, in English, we usually mean things that are harmful, malicious speech that is untrue. But when the Greek uses the word, it actually has a different meaning. It means any speech, whether it's true or false, that runs down another person. So this is really challenging. You know, I may look at that and say, well, it's true. Well, it doesn't matter if it's true. Even if it's true, if it's 100% true, but it runs the other person down, if it's harmful to the other person, well, it's slander, it's corrupting, it's what God is calling us against. See, now I've got to tell you, I've shared in the beginning, this is a passage that is very meaningful because it's been very convicting to me. You see, because I've found myself in the past slipping into very negative terms and spirit, specifically earlier in my marriage with my wife, you know, that I was becoming increasingly negative and increasingly critical. Now, I was too spiritual to to phrase it as as criticism, so I would kind of brush it up and, and make it sarcasm. But I would have things that would bother me and I would have a sarcastic statement and, and then, you know, she would, you know, hurt her feelings and she would tell me and then I would criticize her more and i said, say, well, her only, it was just humor. The problem was she doesn't have a sense of humor. And, um, 
And so that was something that was really defining me. And I realized that, you know, that God started to use this passage and realized that no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. And suddenly it's like, Mike, that's you. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of damaging speech. And if my wife is telling me this is hurting me, by the very nature, I can't defend that. No, this is by very nature defending. And God's confronting me on that issue. And it started to you know, deal with me and saying, no, I'm called instead to speak words that build up. And am I doing that? No, I'm not. And, but even then, I could see the problem. But how do you fix that? So, well, the first thing is you've got to see the problem. You've got to see how significant it is, the seriousness of the problem. See, I had to stop seeing it as this justifiable thing that it was just humor and everybody does it and she doesn't have a sense of humor. And no, I needed to see before God that it's a big thing. In fact, look at what it says here in this passage. If you have your Bibles, verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that's the call. And if we fail to deal with it, look at how God addresses that, God's view view of it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I might look at it and oh, it's a little thing, it's humor. God's saying, no, this grieves me. This is something that breaks my heart. To me, this is a big deal. And that's significant. Suddenly, I can't run away from it. What I need to realize is a follower of Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ, really, and even this book, it says that we have the Holy Spirit that is indwelling within us. And this Holy Spirit that is indwelling within us wants to change us. And we might say, well, this is just who I am. Well, that's, we come to Christ as who we are, but God then changes us. He doesn't leave us that way. He wants to change us. He wants to change our speech. And if we don't let him, it grieves the Holy Spirit. He wants to change us so that our speech reflects Christ. So we represent Christ to our family, to our coworkers, to our community. And when I reflect not who Christ is, but the opposite of that, It grieves the Holy Spirit. It's a big thing to him. Now, again, I might want to justify it and say, but it's just little words. I didn't mean it. You know, often we say, I didn't really mean it. It just slipped out. Okay, let's look what Jesus said about that. Matthew chapter 12, he's talking about speech. He said, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So he's saying the good, the treasure, the heart, The good person out of that heart is going to bring good speech. The evil person out of that heart is going to bring evil speech. And our heart show, our speech reveals the true nature of our heart. And just if we, in case you miss it, go to the next verse. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now that's hard hitting. But you said, what is he saying? What he's saying is that the words are the truest revealers of our heart. Now, you've got to realize it's even more convicting. Jesus doesn't say that it's our evil words, our hateful words, our careless words is what we're held account to. It's our careless words that will justify or condemn us. And suddenly we realize that often it's not the words that I intend to speak, but it's, oh, it just came out. That's just me. Our careless words are important. Why? Because if our words come from our heart, our careless words is what what we say when our guard is down. When I'm not thinking, the real me comes out and it's the truest revealer of who I really am. Now, let's go back to an illustration I used two weeks ago. Two weeks ago when we talked about anger, we talked about this idea of 
our heart and this water. And, and you know, here again, I have these two uh, glasses of water. One is bitter. One is clean. This is clean, fresh water. The other one has salt and vinegar in it. It's, it's bitter. Now, the thing is that if I hit this water, something comes out. There's water that spills out naturally. If I hit this one, it comes out. Now, what happens when I hit this one? Fresh water comes out. When I hit this one, bitter water comes out. Now, the thing that causes the bitterness is not the bump. It's, it's what's inside. And the bump is just revealing what's inside. And the point is that all of us are going to get bumped. All of us are going to get bumped by people in life who frustrate us, who disappoint us. We're all going to deal with people, even in our marriage, and our, our spouse is going to let us down. They're going to frustrate us. And the fact of the matter is what comes out. That's what God was convicting me is that, you know, yeah, marriage bumps and there was a lot of bitterness coming out because there was a bitter heart in me. And God, that's what God was trying to deal with. And even when it says that it's our careless words, we're not held accountable, but we're justified or condemned. Here's what it means. It's that our careless words, it's not because I spoke bad words that God condemns me for my bad words. It's my words are the thing that actually uh, is the evidence against me. See, God is going to judge my heart, and when I speak words that are harmful, that are critical, that are bitter towards another person, they condemn my heart because they reveal the true nature of my heart. And if my words are pure and if they're encouraging, then I'm justified because they reveal the true nature of my heart. See, ultimately, the Bible is clear. Rotten speech is always an expression of our heart. I would like to think it's just a matter of self-discipline. I would like to think I just need to try harder. And, and there are times that, you know, we need to have some self-control. I love what one person, they said, when your mind goes blank, remember to turn off the sound. Good advice. You know, that's good advice. You know, or, on this, um, you know, or, you know, the problem with people who talk too fast is so often they say something they haven't thought about yet. You know, and that's, again, good advice. You know, be careful with that. And so there is a point where you say that's, there's times you be careful. But at the end of the day, if what's coming out is bitter, it's because that's, that's the, the inner editor is turned off. And that's the real me. And so God is saying, okay, I want to fix the real you, and I cannot do it. Ultimately, if I try to do it through self-control, I'm not going to be able to have success. Why? Because I can't fix it. What, what we need is this, this radical transformation of the heart from the inside out. See, if, the, if, my, if my bitter words reveal bitter heart, then how do I change that? If it's just a matter of self-control, I can try harder. But here's the issue. Self-control is trying to put a lid on this. And ultimately, something's going to come that's going to shake off the lid. The issue is, how do I turn this into this? How do I take bitter and turn it into sweet? I can't do that. I can try to put a cap, but it's ultimately, it's going to spill out. Ultimately, what I need is not more self-control. I need God to come and do a miracle. I need God to do something. Look what James says about this. James chapter 3, it's talking about speech. And look what he says. Every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restful evil full of deadly poison. Now, it's not saying it's helpless, you give up, you're never going to have success. What it's saying is you can't do it on your own. You know, you might be able to tame your dog or your pet and but you cannot tame your own tongue because it's a heart issue. You cannot, you cannot change your own heart. 
know, God is calling us to say, God, I agree with you. I've got a problem. I agree that there's something broken. God, I need you to do what only you can do. God, I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive me through your grace and to change me through Jesus Christ. And then help me to put on speech that, that doesn't tear down but builds up and that gives grace to hear. So that's what I was struggling with in my marriage. And it's becoming, you know, negative and critical. And God began to convict me of this. And I, I started to pray, God, at first I tried self-control. I was holding down the cap and it kept sp- spilling out. And, and I said, God, I agree. And, I, and, and God convicted me. Not only that, okay, now take off the old and then put on the new. So God, help me give, have a positive spirit. So I made this commitment on my own. I didn't talk to Sandy about this at all. I said, okay, I'm gonna, when I have a frustration, if I want to criticize, I'm gonna compliment her instead. Now, you know how bad this was, how bad I was? I started doing that, and I would, something would happen. I'd say, Sandy, I really appreciate about this. And she'd say, so what did I do now? You know? And that was a response. I'd never told her what I was trying to do, but she could tell that I was faking it. That I was, but, but I wasn't faking it. I was fighting in my own heart. And, and my, what I told her is, is I learned to say, Sandy, it's not anything you're doing. It's something that's wrong with me. And just be patient with me. And she was, and I appreciate that. And, and I can't say I've totally gotten this down, but you know what? I've surrendered an awful lot. And, and I've said, God, take this off. Change my heart. And he's helping me become a person that, that doesn't speak the critical words, but speaks encouraging and positive words. And it's made a world of a difference in, in our marriage and, and in Sandy's life. And I'm thankful for how God's doing that. Now, you see, ultimately, this isn't just about taking off. It's, it's about putting on, letting God change us and then putting on the speech of righteousness, these words of encouragement. Look at the verse again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building others up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, now this isn't just about what we do. It isn't about don't do this, but say this instead. It's, God, I need you to change me. Why was I critical? Because my heart was critical. And I can't force positive words. I can only say, God, make me a more positive person. And then out of that will flow that speech. And part of the way he makes me is say, God, help me to say it. I need to say it. I need to use even words to retrain my heart. Use words that encourage and that build up. Look at it again, it says, speak only words that are good for building up. Instead of tearing down and rotting, it builds up, encourages. You know, a great passage, that, the picture, the passage that has a picture of encouragement. It's the one in Exodus chapter 17. It's a story about the people of Israel that were in this battle. And Moses was on this hill that was overlooking. And, and while he's up there, you know, Joshua is leading the people in the battle. And, and, and for whatever reason, God had it so that if he raised up his hands... The people of Israel were winning the battle. Uh, but if he let them down, they started losing the battle. And he realizes he's trying to hold up his hands, and the people, the people down there realize that. But the problem is you can only hold up your hands so long. And so they saw him straining to keep his arms up, and, and look at what happened, Exodus 17, 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. I love that picture. Here he's tired. He cannot do it. And you have two people that says, okay, I'm going to come and hold up your hands. Now here's where it applies to us today. Whose hands are you holding up? Who around you is exhausted right now? 
Who can you come alongside? And, and oftentimes, you might not get any credit. You might not get any glory. People may not notice you. They might be, you know, they might say, well, that's that other person struggling, but they're struggling through it because someone else is holding up their hands. And whether it's a mom who's struggling just with everyday demands of kids or whether it's you know, people that are uncertain about your work and, and finances or ongoing health concerns or whether it's people that are struggling in the midst of relationships, of marriage or of kids or whatever it would be, we all know people that are struggling. And the question is, who are you encouraging? Whose arms are you lifting up? We all have the ability to do that. We all can make this kind of difference. You know, and I think about this even in my own life, and I'm thankful for during the hardest times that God has provided people that have held up Sandy and I's arms. And I'm not sure we would have gotten through some periods of time if it weren't for those people that were there for us. Because there is a battle. It's a battle of discouragement. It's in our church, and it's in our country, and it's all around us, and, and we've got to fight it. And it's not only us somehow straining to do it, it's us holding each other's arms up. So let's even think of it this way. If someone were to ask you, you know, who are the greatest encouragers in your life? Could you think of some people? Now, let me turn that around. If you had people in your life and they asked them, who are the greatest encouragers in your life, how many people would put you on that list? How many lists would you make? Now, here's the thing we've got to realize. All of us can do that. All of us have the ability to have that kind of encouragement. All of us have the ability to hold up someone else's hands. All of us can do that. And we can make a world of a difference in people's lives. The question is, will we? I want to encourage parents and grandparents. This is something we need to do for our kids. You know, one of the things that we struggle as parents with is sometimes we can get so focused on correcting our kids and encouraging them to do this, you need to do this better, that, that our, in, our increasingly our, our, our uh, communication is negative. It's correcting, telling them what they have to do. As parents, we need to be, yes, we need to correct them, but we also need to be careful to have five times as many praises and encouragements. Recognize what they're doing well, as well as not only correcting. Or let me give you another idea. This is probably something that has made one of the biggest things that Sandy and I discovered in our own parenting. And because we tried to teach our kids to do this with each other. We have four kids. They're all within five years of age. And so when you think about all kids that are that close together, they could tend to kind of get on each other's nerves, bug, bug each other. When they were young, we saw them beginning to complain against each other and criticize each other and tease each other. And, and, and I remember seeing this, and I remember thinking, you know, we live in a hard world where they're going to get cut down and they're going to be criticized, and, you know, it's, it's hard. And in the middle of that, I thought, you know, home should be the one place where there's encouragement. It should be the one place where you got people holding up the hands and not tearing them down. And at the same time, God had, before that, been confronting me about my speech in Ephesians 4, and, and I'd been working on this in my own life and in my marriage and so after thinking about it and praying about it, talking with Sandy, we decided, hey, we're going to try to teach this with our kids. And so we got our kids together and we did several devotions on this verse and, and just simple language, just saying, you know, this corrupting, that means harmful speech. God calls us to have no harmful speech towards each other. Anything that is critical, anything that is complaining, anything that is, you know, even teasing in a negative way. And we told them, okay, we're going to do something to hold each other accountable to that. So I gave them all five quarters. And I said, okay, you got five quarters. You can make money on this if, you, you know, if you're careful. But from now on, anytime we hear any of you say anything negative about another person, it costs you a quarter on the spot. 
And when you go through these five quarters, it's out of your own pocket from there on in. And it's amazing how quickly their speech changed. It is amazing, you know, because suddenly they were listening to themselves and it made an incredible difference. Now, the hard part, the most convicting thing is that I had to live up to it as well. Because if I'm catching them, they're going to start listening to me and catch my critical speech. And so I had to be accountable. And even if they caught me, I just, you know, I couldn't defend my, well, here's why it's okay. No, I'm guilty. You're right. Okay, I'll you a quarter. Um, that was a lot harder. In fact, we talked about this and worked on it ourselves before we gave it to the kids because we had to kind of work on cleaning ourselves up before we made ourselves accountable to them. But it made a world of a difference. And, and you know, I would tell you, throughout, even to this day, throughout middle school, throughout, they have never, since that time, they've never criticized each other. They've never teased each other. And the relationship and the home environment is radically different. Now, the, now the harder part was teaching the positive. Not only taking off the negative, teaching the positive. So then we started to do some, after some time, we did devotions on not only negative speech, but God calls us to do building speech. How do we teach them that? So we started to try to listen. And if they ever said anything that complimented, we praised them, we'd even give them little prizes. And, and then we were struggling with that. And so finally we started something that, again, really worked for us. We, we started periodically at dinner. We said, okay, today we're going to have a dinner where we're going to encourage each other. And so we're going to go around and we're going to start with, okay, okay uh, let's start with the youngest, David. Okay, everybody's going to go and say something that's special about David, something that's unique. Then Christy and then Tiffany or, 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 Dave, or John and then Christy and, and Tiffany. And we spent time and would go through. Now, at first, they weren't very good at it. It would be like, well, Tiffany has a nice shirt. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good try. You know, Christy played with me today. Well, that's good, you know. But over time, they started to learn to actually compliment each other, to see good in each other. And over time, that then carried over where they encourage each other naturally. And so we would go around and we would say something positive. We'd all cheer at the end. Yay, you know, yay, Tiffany, after everybody. And, and it made a difference. So much so that now they're all in their 20s. We still do this. We do it at our birthdays. Every birthday, it's like, okay, we're going to go around and, and okay, it's, you know, you know mom, it's mom's birthday recently. Mom's somebody special. We're gonna, everybody's going to take time and people say, speak for you know, for several minutes talking about what they appreciate about mom and each other. And when we build up, it makes a world of a difference. My friends, we can teach these things. But let me encourage you, as a parent, this is a good idea. It makes a world of a difference. Try it. It's just, it's just applying God's word and, and teaching our kids God's word into our own lives. See, God calls us to speak these words that build up, but words that are also, that uh, understand and meet the need. Look what it says. We're called uh, to speak words that are good for building up as fits the occasion. Now, what this means is that part of being an encourager is being involved in each other's lives so that we're aware of each other's needs. If I'm not aware that someone is having a hard time holding their arms up, I can't be there to hold their arms up. So we've got to be involved in each other's lives. We've got to listen. We've got to talk. We've got to be sensitive to each other. That's part of what we're doing at the end of the service. So we have this prayer time at the end. We will have a closing song. We'll invite you to come and pray. You know why we're doing that? Part of it is we want to hold each other's arms up. I'd encourage you, if you know somebody here that's going through a hard time and we have that time, hey, come alongside of them and say, hey, let's go down and let me pray with you. We saw that even in the first service. It was beautiful for people to say, hey, can I pray for you? Hey, I'm aware of this need. I want to uphold you. And, and you might be there, I need somebody to help me. Well, come down and let other people come and pray with you because we all need that. We need to be involved in each other's lives. And we're trying to encourage that in any way that we can. We're also called to put on speech that, that literally imparts grace. 
Let me show you again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know something that I've seen here that is just powerful? When you think about grace, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. Now, what that means is that I'm to speak these words to people who don't deserve it. People who don't deserve to have good things spoken about them. That's what we're to give. It's not, well, they deserve it. Well, they they haven't said anything to me. No, no, I'm called to do it as grace, unmerited favor, as God gave me what I didn't deserve. And we need to realize that because God has shown that kind of grace towards us. It's not that we don't see the negative in other people. We ignore it. No, there may be times that speaking words that benefit is confronting in a positive way, not critical, but a building way. But we're also called to focus on the positive. Look what it says in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, any, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, that implies there's a lot of things in people's lives that aren't true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or praiseworthy. There's a lot of things that aren't those things. And it's not that we ignore it, but he's saying, no, think about these things. Make the effort to think about, to dwell on, to vocalize that. Why? Because it's grace. And what is grace words? You know what it ultimately is? It's saying, this is where I see God working in your life. I may look at things and say, well, man, that needs to be fixed. That needs to be fixed. Here's one thing that I really see God really working. This is one part of God's character that's shining through. Let me focus there. Let me dwell there. I've got to bring hope. Not only that, but I'm bringing hope in a sense that God is working and you might even be struggling. If I really see a little growth, I want to not, not dwell on your failure. I want to celebrate the little growth. I want, to, I want to speak words of hope. Why? Because God's grace transforms. Grace words are words that are God-focused and, and they even anticipate what God is yet to do as well as celebrating what God is currently doing, that we speak that kind of words to each other, that, that even from a, the world of of concern and worry and all the things that are happening around us and what's going to happen. Remember, God's sovereign. God's got a plan in this all. That we have words that are encouraging that say, hey, let's look, let's pray for God to do something good. Let's have words of hope that we aren't just walking away discouraged, but we're walking away, in a sense, built up. The world is negative all around us. That shouldn't be who we are. And the people around us, are they built up by our words? See, ultimately, we're called to be people of grace, people who are impacted by grace and then speak words of grace. What does it say? That we may have give grace to those who hear. Now, giving grace to those who hear, there's somewhat of a prerequisite. See, until I've received that grace, I really don't understand the ability to give that grace. So we're people, first of all, transformed by grace, that we recognize that God didn't love us because we deserve to be loved. He loved us while we were sinners, that Christ died for us while we were rejecting him, that he showed grace that we didn't deserve, and so we're called to do that likewise. And then what is Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3? It's all about God speaking, God speaking this new identity. And we're not living it out. We're not always looking like a child of God, and we're not practice holy and blameless, but what does God say there? This is who you are. This is your new identity. This is, this is who you are in Christ. Now live it out. Believe it. My friends, that's what God has called us to be, people who have experienced that and then who speak that grace to others. Impart grace in our speech to show God and his perspective, to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of other people. 
to remember, regardless of the circumstances, God is sovereign. God is working in people's lives. And when people are, you know, man, they're so frustrating. You no, know, God loved them to see them through God's eyes, to see them not for who they are, but who they could be through God's grace and have hope and to pray for them from that perspective of hope so that when people spend time with us, they walk away not weighed down by the discouraging news of our culture or the criticism of the, of the spirit around us, but they are encouraged and are hopeful and feel better about themselves. And the power of those words can have life-changing influence in ways that are beyond what we could ever imagine. You see, that's what Sister Helen found out. Yeah, she was just teaching eighth grade and she had this difficult group of eighth graders and then she gave them this little exercise that she was just hoping would kind of break the spirit of negativity just kind of out of her frustration and maybe encourage a student that was really beat down. She had even completely forgotten about it until Mark's father reminded her. You see, Mark had been one of those eighth grade students. It had been really difficult, and, and, but then he had gone through and he graduated and after graduating, he joined the army. He was then deployed into a war zone where he was then killed. And so she, Sister Helen, had attended Mark's funeral, and after the service, she was with the, her parents and a number of the students that were there from that class, and, and they were talking. And suddenly, Mark's father stepped in and said something that shocked her. Let me read it from her words. She writes, Mark's father took out a, a wallet out of his pocket. She, he said, they found this on Mark when he was killed. And he carefully removed a folded, refolded, and taped piece of paper, the one on which I listed the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. An amazing, an amazing thing. Charlie smiled sheepishly and said, I keep my list in my desk drawer. Chuck's wife said, Chuck put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. And Vicki reached into her pocketbook and brought out her frazzled list. And Sister Helen was floored by the lifelong impact that little assignment of a few kind words had in the lives of those young people. My friends, our words can be a thrust of a sword that can do great damage and we don't realize it. But if we are wise, if we're careful, if we let God reshape us, our words bring life and healing in a way that could be remembered years, decades later. They could really literally reshape the lives of other people. That's what God has called us to. You see, all of us can do that. Not on our own. No one can tape the tongue. But God saying, God, I need you to change me. God, I agree. I ask you to forgive me, to, to give me this new heart. And then God help me to learn what it means to put on this, this new character, this new speech, to be people who speak encouragement, that hold up other hands, that, that look for the opportunities and the need, that literally speak grace to each other. And God will use that to not only change us from the inside out, but then through us to change others as well. And that is it for this week's message. If you'd like to get in touch, send us a text to 330-644-6121. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.